from Mark in chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick and palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick and palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there were certain of the scribes sitting there, reasoning among themselves, What did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick and the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick and the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way unto thine own house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. He went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of customs, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto the disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick, I came, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come to him and say, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples fast not? Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine does burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred, and the new bottles must be put, or the new wine must be put into new bottles. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and the disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. The Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? He said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need? And he was hungered, and they that were with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, 
but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. So he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Please be seated. Good morning. I'd like to begin with a question this morning. What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? What does following Jesus look like in your life, the lives of those perhaps in your own household, the lives here contained within this particular body here at Hope in Christ? What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I'd like you to consider that question this morning as we go through Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. If we look at verse 13, there's some context that sets the stage here right at the beginning in verse 13. I just, one of the things I, I especially enjoy about the Gospels is being able to piece together and look at not only the main text for this morning is in Mark 2, 13 through 17, but supplemental passages, Luke 5, 27 through 32, and Matthew 9, 9 through 13. It's enjoyable to be able to see how the different writers cover the same account. So look at verse 13. It's loaded. Then he went out again by the sea. And all the multitudes came to him and he taught them. Then. Small word. Leads us to believe there's something else that's been happening. And really when we look back at the text and we see verses 1 through 12 where Jesus had been. Jesus had been in the house. Chapter 2 verse 1 says. He'd been in the house. He'd preached the word to a standing room only crowd. So many people. The Bible says there weren't enough there in the house, there were people gathered outside, people curious. And in the midst of his preaching, because the text says at the end of verse 2 that he preached the word to them in this house. In the midst of his preaching, a portion of the ceiling crumbles and a man, a paralytic man, he's lowered down to the floor by four faithful folks trying to get their friend and audience with Jesus. Jesus rewards these men, the faith of these men, and says, directs his attention then in verse 5 to the paralytic, and says, son, your sins are forgiven you. You know, I got to thinking, to those who had gathered that day in the house, 
Perhaps that's not what they expected to see or to hear. An interruption to the teacher's preaching. He's in the house, and all of a sudden, little bits and pieces start falling out. Everybody's looking. And we don't know exactly how big it was. It was big enough for them to lower this man on a mat in front of Jesus. It caught people's attention, no doubt, in the house, right? It interrupted his preaching. But I got to thinking also about the paralytic. And I wondered if verse 5, those words from Jesus, came as a surprise to the paralytic. I mean, after all, the paralytic is in need of healing. Okay, the news of what Jesus could do had reached him, and he too desired to be healed of his paralysis. I mean, that's the whole essence of him going. These four friends were making an effort to get him in front of Jesus. But on this day, Jesus addresses the man's sins and says that they're forgiven. Well, that seems to open up the door in verse 6. We get a, uh, the text opens the door of the house, if you will, and allows us to see that a few of the scribes had box seats. They were there in the house. And they listened intently to these words of Jesus. And the text says they reasoned in their hearts. They didn't even speak the words. Don't pass that by. They reasoned in their hearts. What they reason? What's the text say? Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And herein unveils this reasoning in their heart. It unveils something fundamentally wrong about their view of Jesus. You see, they saw him as a man. Not as God in the flesh. And all the news they had heard about this man, Jesus. And if you read all of chapter 1 and and leading up to chapter 2, you see all of what Jesus has done to this point. Quite a lot. In fact, I believe one of the reasons those scribes were sitting there in that house that day... They were scouting Jesus. (laughs) They were checking him out. They had heard about him. You know, remember remember how they they sent scouts to go ask about John the Baptist? Who, Who are you? I love John's response to all that. Very direct, very straightforward, just as John Baptist typically is. But I see the scribes in the same manner, in the house, they're just checking it out. Who is this man? And so they reason in their heart. And so no doubt they're present this day to verify the news they'd been hearing. I mean, after all, they've been hearing this news about how Jesus was casting out unclean spirits and how he'd been healing those who were sick, demon-possessed, how he'd healed this leper at the end of chapter 1. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, that was the question stirring in their hearts. And Jesus perceives in his spirit, the text says, what the scribes are reasoning in their hearts. And he addresses it amidst the crowd gathered in the house. And this would have been one of those moments. High tension. I mean, after all, here's this man, Jesus, who had been preaching, and now some of the roof caves in here, and they got this guy on a mat before him. Kind of an awkward situation, perhaps. And while all this is going on, you got these guys over here sitting in the chair, reasoning these things in their heart. And Jesus now is going to address something that the people in the room hadn't even heard. Jesus, where is this coming from? Because he goes on. Look at the text. Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Now, Jesus doesn't point to these scribes and say, I know what you're thinking. All he does is speak the words. You see, the scribes in the seat know. (laughs) They know who's, who's being pointed at here. Who's the direction of his words? Why are you reasoning this in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then shifting his attention to the paralytic. I say to you, arise, take up your bed. And go to your house. Can you imagine the tension in the house upon hearing those words? The excitement perhaps that the paralytic was feeling. The uncertainty but excitement. The four men having accomplished their objective and getting their, their friend to Jesus. And the scribes sitting there. Well... Verse 12 says, immediately he arose. The former paralytic is now standing, walking around. He took up his bed. He went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God. Now, I tend to believe that all doesn't necessarily include the scribes. I don't get the impression that they were amazed and went out and glorified God. I do believe that about everybody else in the house did that. And they said, we never saw anything like this. And and look at the next verse. Then he went out again by the sea. Then he went out again by the sea. So he's leaving the house. He's walking out by the sea. Here's another word. Important in the text. Again. Leads me to believe. Ought to lead you to believe. He's been by the sea. When? Well, we fast forward, go backwards again, go to chapter 1. Look at verse 16. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee. That ought to be one of those bing, bing, bing. All right. That's where he was. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, what did he do? 
He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay. So, the last time he went out by the sea, he saw Simon and Andrew and James and John. They were on the job doing what fishermen do, and Jesus shows up. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Verse 18, they immediately left their nets and followed him. By the way, if you read through Mark's gospel, one of his favorite words is immediately. Immediately. Mark takes you from here to here to here to here. It's immediately. It's... I like it. Fast. He goes from point A to point B. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily explain how he gets to point A to point B. He just goes, like we're going to find out today in the text in just a moment. But it's pew, pew, pew. Okay? So, they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, in verse 19, he goes a bit further and he sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're in the boat, mending their nets. Verse 20 says, immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father and went after Jesus. So the last time Jesus went out by the sea, at least what we have recorded for us, he saw four fishermen and called them and said to them, follow me. We see Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed, and James and John left their father and went after Jesus. So then he went, going back chapter 2, verse 13, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. See, contextually, Jesus leaves the house, goes out by the sea once again, and after seeing what Jesus did just moments ago, the crowd gathers around him. Word is out about what's just happened. Jesus is not walking by himself, but the text says that all the multitude came to him. The people are hungry for Jesus. And whether their motives were altogether pure or not, they flocked to Jesus at this point in his ministry. In fact, you read the Gospels and you see it time and time and time and time again. People. You know, one of the things I believe is a side note we can learn from Jesus. He seemed to always have time for people. You know, even in the moments when he's not with people, the Gospels are pretty clear. I believe that the time he's not with people, he's with the Father praying. Those solitary moments that you read about in Mark 1, 35, that early morning when he gets up to go pray to the Father, 
In the midst of everyone wanting to see you, Jesus. Remember Simon comes and looking for him? Where are you? Everyone's looking for you. He takes time for people. You see, there's something that the crowd picked up on about Jesus. He spoke differently. He acted differently. There seems to be a power behind his words. Right? Chapter 1, verse 22 says that very thing. You know, they were astonished at his teaching. Because he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And the evidence of his words... See, those in the house just saw the paralytic with their own eyes. He got up, he picked up his bed, and he left the house. And word continued to spread about Jesus. And as the multitude around Jesus grew, notice what Jesus does. He taught them. Text says, he taught them. You find that phrase, you'll find that word, very common word. He taught them. That's what he does. Notice who he's teaching, though. The masses of people around him. Not just church folk. The people. He doesn't motion for them to just wait, to hang on. He doesn't tell them to come back tomorrow for another episode. He received the crowd that gathers and he teaches them. He taught the masses that gathered around him and he had a word for the masses. I want you to think about that. You know, I was, I was drawn to that, just thinking about that idea. What do you have to say to this great crowd of people that gathered around him on the way to the sea? What do you say? That's oftentimes, what do you say? How do you talk? How do you teach to a little, little one and, a, and an old, older one? What do you have to say? What do I need to say? How do I package it so that this little one gets it and so that this old one's not bored out of his mind? You know what I was drawn to? I was drawn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I was thinking about Ephesians 2. And if you look at Ephesians 2 for just a moment, it's it's the passage that just came to mind as I was reading and thinking about this. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it talks about Paul saying, He himself is our peace, Christ, okay? Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that is to create in himself, one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You see, Christ came to reconcile people unto himself, right? But look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to whom? To you who were afar off and to those who were near. I love that. You know what? His message doesn't change. He preaches the same thing. This is not a, a catered message to a certain group of people. He's got, he's got um, ten messages in his pocket. And based upon the person, he's going to pull out message A. Because, you know, after all, message A fits this person where they might be. No. I believe Jesus preached the same message. He didn't lower the bar on the message based upon who that person was. He preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. It's the same message. 
And I believe today, as we think about the messages that we, we share or we're thinking about sharing with others, this is something... I believe the fear of man has kind of entered into the picture. Because I think oftentimes we may be fearful of saying certain words because in our own minds we're justifying where they may be. They may not want to hear too much Jesus talk. They may not want to hear a whole lot about that three-letter word, sin. So I'll just use some different words. I want to encourage you. Let that message be the message. What the message of Christ is. Let that be the message. Make sure Jesus is the message, the central point of the message. It's not about them feeling better. No, no, no. In fact, first of all, they're going to probably feel pretty bad because we're talking about a good news message that has bad news in it. You're a sinner. You need to first deal with sin. And we can speak that truth in love, can we not? Speak it in love. But we must not bypass it. So Jesus is preaching, he's teaching. He spoke on the road. He opened his mouth on the way as they traveled from place to place. And on this particular occasion, he taught the multitude. And yet he's headed for the sea. He's going to the sea. Look at verse 14. As he passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. We're not too far removed from tax time, are we? How many many times have you encountered someone you know just passing by? Probably on many occasions. You've... You've passed by and you've seen someone that you know. You're on your way. You have a specific destination in mind. And yet you pass by certain folks. Some that you know. Some that you've just maybe met on occasion. I'm convinced in the text that the man at the tax office, whom Mark identifies as Levi, I'm convinced that he had both seen and heard of Jesus. I'm equally convinced that Jesus had seen Levi. You know, here's an interesting thing about tax collectors. In the day, from what I can understand, their tax booth, their office, was on some elevated platform. And this was in a a particular area very noticeable, very visible. The tax office was visible, elevated, noticeable, because, you see, people needed to know how they could pay their taxes. And it was very clear, if you happened to be passing by that particular road, a very major road, main thoroughfare, if you will, it would have been quite obvious who and where you needed to go if you needed to pay your taxes. But it was also a good place for this tax collector to perch himself. Because, you see, he had a good look at everything and everyone. And he had his list. So this was not, let's, 
Let's erase maybe what we think of when we think of an office in like some closed building in some little cubicle. <laughs> okay? No, no. This, this was visible. This was platformed, easily seen. So, you know, I think with Jesus as he comes by previously and Levi having heard of Jesus, no doubt, through all the things that's been going on lately, you know, it's possible that they too, these two, Jesus and Levi, had passed by each other on various occasions. And maybe, maybe it was just a look. Maybe it was a look, maybe it was a word. Good day, an acknowledgement. Sometimes we do that, don't we, when we pass by? We give a nod or give a smile. On this day, after the wonder and amazement of the paralytic rising to walk, Jesus goes out by the sea. His ministry work is not done. The crowds gather. The teaching begins again, and as he passes by, he sees Levi. What's Levi doing when Jesus sees him? We're led to believe he's sitting at the tax office. He's doing his work. He's at work. So you look at the end of verse 14. And he said to him, follow me. You know, it sounds like what he said back in chapter 1, verse 17. You know, I tend to believe that Simon and Andrew were traveling with Jesus at this point. And you remember what he says there? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You know, I, I got to thinking and wondering what they thought when Jesus issued that familiar refrain, follow me. Uh-oh. He said that to us. When we were back here in that fishing boat. And you get the picture, Simon and, and James may have been thinking or talking to each other and, and James saying, yeah, my, my dad had a, you know, he had, kind of an odd look on his face when we stepped off the boat and we were following after Jesus. That call, there's was, there was something about his call. And you know, he doesn't elaborate a whole, whole lot. He just says, follow me. And as I recall, he said something that in following him, that he would make us become fishers of men. Maybe this Maybe this is what he's talking about. So Levi arose and followed him. The text says. Why? Why would a lucrative tax collector follow this man Jesus? What would lead a tax collector to leave it all to follow after Jesus? By the way, in the text, we know of another familiar tax collector, don't we? Zacchaeus. 
Okay? This is not the only tax collector we see whose life is changed following after Jesus. You know, I wonder that morning, as Levi got things ready to go to the office, I wonder if he considered seeing Jesus that day. I wonder how he received the news of Jesus being circulated throughout Galilee. Because, you know what Mark 1.28 says? His fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Word was out. Word was out. I wonder if Levi had rehearsed any potential conversation with this man, Jesus. On this day, Jesus is surrounded by yet another multitude. And yet as he passes by the tax office, Jesus sees him. Of all people to call, Jesus calls Levi. And I wonder if Levi was as stunned as the others to hear those words from Jesus, follow me. Did Levi understand the full implications of what it meant to follow Jesus? Do you understand it? See, no questions appear in the text. No hints of hesitation. No inquiry on the benefits associated with following him. No turning back. I like especially how Luke describes the actions of Levi. Luke 5, 28. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Left all, rose up, and followed him. See, prior to this moment, Levi had been about the business of his boss. Rome had required certain quotas to be filled, and Levi was the man for the job. His loyalty was to Rome to accomplish the work given to him. Never mind that he was seen by his fellow Jews as a traitor. Never mind that he was banned from the synagogue. Never mind the fact that he was seen as an outsider, viewed by many in the same class as prostitutes and murderers. You see, working for a power, money-hungry boss, and yet hated by his own people, Levi went about his business each day, and he received a handsome wage, no doubt, for such work. All the more reason to ask, why? Why would Levi just leave it all behind? Why would he forego the large bank account and the comfortable lifestyle for stepping into the unknown, defined as following Jesus? I believe the text stirs us to ask the question, Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you follow him? 
Obviously, that's, there's an assumption there that you are. Maybe the better question is, are you following? Do you follow Jesus part-time? Like you would have a part-time job? Do you follow Jesus on Sunday? You're here. Praise the Lord, you're here. Is this your part-time following? After the day comes to a close, the sun goes down, the day ends. Are you done following him until next Sunday? Is that what Jesus called Levi to? Are you following Jesus thinking that if you do, there's something in it right here and now for you in return? Have you received the call to follow Jesus? And if so, what does that entail? He says, follow me. You know what? Being real honest with the text, I know there are some questions I'd like to ask after he says, follow me. Where? Where are we going? How, how long? Give me a, See, I, I like to have a start and an end time. Any of you out there like to know the parameters of when this is starting, when this is going to end? Why? I mean, things are going pretty well here. I, I realize not a lot of people here, my own people, like me for what I'm doing. But I am getting paid a handsome salary for doing this. Why? Why should I leave this? Can I, can I follow him and still keep living on my own? To, to what extent does Jesus expect me to follow him? And how often is he desiring me to follow him? One writer says, occurring 19 times in, in Mark. Following, the word following, is a load-bearing term that describes the proper response of faith. And is indeed practically synonymous with faith. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. It's something one does, not simply what one thinks or believes. I must say that again. It's what one does. Not simply what one thinks or believes. Mark records no dialogue in the call. Like the four fishermen back in chapter 1, 16 through 20. Levi must respond solely to the authority of Jesus and his call. Reminds me of Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them. What did he say? What was the first thing he said there? All authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
That's the beginning of what we oftentimes... See, we oftentimes don't read that part. We oftentimes go right to, go make disciples of all nations. And that's there. Absolutely. But it's important we read this verse prior to go make disciples. Because you see, the authority that's in place is the very authority that you and I ought to be listening to and have with us all the time. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to understand we're following Jesus primarily because of his authority, because of who he is. We talked about in the book of Jonah about capturing the picture of who God is. And when we talk about who God is, it's absolutely necessary. We also talk about Jesus. Let's define God and make sure we talk about Jesus because if we talk about God, apart from any dialogue discussion about Jesus, we're missing it. We're missing the gospel. It's his authority. I mean, look at some of these passages. John 6, John 6, 24 to 27. This is, this is interesting because, you know, these are some people who got their bellies filled. Remember that? They got their bellies filled. They happened to be present when Jesus fed some 5,000. And so here in John chapter 6, starting in 24, it says, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. Sounds good. Let's keep reading. And when they found him, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. Right? So Jesus is understanding they're seeking him. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Isn't it interesting that he's perceiving even their own hearts in this text? He knows why they're seeking him. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. If you fast forward in this text, he says some really hard things for the people, you know, like eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Okay? It was, it was hard, hard, hard for them. And, and so verse 60, after he gets done, says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And you keep reading a few verses later. Verse 66, here it is. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They went back and walked with him no more. You see, following Jesus just might not align with your expectations and desires. Following Jesus might not be real comfortable for you. And you might not fully understand it. In John 6, 66, there's a weeding out here. Many of the disciples went back. They walked with Jesus no more. Here's, a, here's an interesting thing to consider for just a moment. When you read the Gospels and you see time and time again how the crowds gathered around Jesus. And then you fast forward to Christ's ascension, Right? Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, 11, I believe. And in the next few verses, the apostles are gathered in the upper room. And you know what the text there says? At the time Jesus left, you know how many were following? 120. 
Where'd they all go? They're gone. There's 120 when Jesus leaves. There's something to be said here about what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus isn't just going seeking him to get something that he's given to you, i.e. the bread. Well, how about Luke 9? He says to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Following Jesus requires self-sacrifice, risk. You see, there in Luke 9, 23, follow me comes third, doesn't it? After deny self, take up the cross daily. There's something to following Jesus. Or how about Luke 14? This is a hard one. 25 through 27 and verse 33. Now great multitudes went with him. There it is again. And he turned and said to them. Here's what he said to the multitudes. Think about how odd this is. Jesus is speaking these words to crowds. You know what crowds do today to a lot of people? And listen to what Jesus says when the multitudes gather around him. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's something else pretty interesting about following Jesus. Following Jesus seems to mean that handling my own family relationships, understanding who I am and why I'm here on this earth breathing air, Following Jesus means that these family relationships ought to be prioritized in a certain way. And it's odd because, you know, so many of us dearly love our families and rightly so. But I believe part of following Jesus is making sure that the priority is following Jesus. Some hard words. And people, people have always taken those words and, and twisted them and, and softened them, perhaps. I don't know if Jesus intended them to be soft words. I don't think so. How about Luke 18, 22 and 23? When Jesus heard these things, he's, talking, he's speaking to the rich young ruler. Remember that story? He says, you still lack one thing. He says, all these things I've done since my youth, what, what do I need to do here? He says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Again, precursor to following him. But when he, listen, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. You see, following Jesus means that my treasure is now stored in heaven, not here on earth. Levi was rich. I tend to believe he was a rich man, wealthy. 
He didn't go away sorrowful. No, 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 quite the opposite. He left all, rose up, followed Jesus. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right? Levi did it. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. So here we see that following Jesus is an indicator of who you are serving. Who's your master? Who are you following? One of my favorites, 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So following Jesus means that I am under obligation. The word in the text, ought, means I am under obligation. Under obligation, not an option. He who says he abides in him ought himself. He's under obligation now to walk as Christ himself walked. Not an option. Why does Jesus call Levi? I mean, why at this time? I mean, after all, again, going back, the multitudes were right there by his side. He just had healed this paralytic. People were amazed at what happened. Word was going out. Crowds follow him down to the sea. He had this big following at his heels. I mean, Jesus, there's, there's no, no need to call a tax collector right now. This is not a politically correct maneuver for Jesus. And yet as he passes by, he sees Levi and loves him with the words, follow me. Stop serving your money, God, and follow me, Levi. Stop trying to please the Roman government. And follow me. Levi, you might feel ostracized by your own people, but I want you to follow me. I want you to know I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The writer says that Mark's words emphasize the brevity of Jesus' call and Levi's radical obedience. The man with leprosy back at the end of chapter 1, Mark 1, 40, 43 despised by the people, was touched and healed by Jesus. Levi was also despised by his countrymen, not for a physical disease, but for his occupation. Jesus also touched and healed Levi, here it is, rearranging his priorities and choosing him to be one of his disciples. Following Jesus means that he is Lord now, Lord, master, the boss. Because of who he is, because of the authority granted to him, all of life is different now. You see, Christ in you rearranges your priorities. Or does it? Thinking about rearranging his priorities, thinking about priorities. 
You know, I'm looking forward to this week. Spring cleaning is happening in our house this week. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this week. It's a good thing that's happening this week because the garage is getting to be quite a challenge. You see, in our house, I don't know if this works in yours, but in our house, during the winter, if you're not using it or if it's, you know, it's out in the garage. And the other day I was out in the garage, I said something to my wife. I said, I said I'm sure glad we're, we're getting close to cleaning this garage. I said, because it's like hard almost to even open the door now. The stuff is like by the door. You know, you open, and the stuff, stuff. Anyone else have a stuff problem? Well, the stuff is going this week. And the priority this week is getting that stuff out of the garage. And you know, I got to thinking how you have all kinds of stuff in your daily schedule, don't you? Like that stuff that may be taking up space in my garage. What, what stuff is on your schedule taking up unnecessary space? What needs to go? See, because Jesus has called you to follow him for the rest of your days, to walk as he walked. And so what stuff is there in your life that needs to be tossed, blown away like the chaff? You remember that storm back in Jonah, chapter 1? Remember when it hit? Remember the reaction to the mariners? First thing the text says is they were afraid. And then it says that each one of them called upon his own God. But do you remember what else they did? This is a great part of the text. And they just start picking up cargo. Tossing it. To lighten the load. I love that picture. Because that's, I really believe in many ways, that's exactly what you and me need to do in our lives. We need to take that stuff and it needs to go. It needs to go. We just haven't need, we need a cargo throwing party. Rearranging your priorities in light of following Jesus. It's absolutely necessary. In fact, think about it. To follow Jesus and not have a change in priorities, what does that say about your following Jesus? Are you really following Jesus as described in the text? How many of you know Jesus can rearrange your priorities? <laughs> Amen. And sometimes, sometimes in the moment, perhaps it's not comfortable. Perhaps you don't like it. Perhaps you think you've got another idea. You've got another plan. You 
You know, these people that Jesus calls right here in the text in Mark 1 and Mark 2, these people that end up being his 12 disciples, their lives were rearranged. Their priorities were rearranged when they followed Jesus. And you especially see it, don't you? After the resurrection, in the book of Acts. Don't you see it time and time and time again? These guys are going out and they're following Jesus. Jesus is no longer there, but now they've been empowered to do the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit who's come to dwell and live within them forever. The Spirit, same Spirit who points them to the very words of Christ Himself. And now they, their lives are totally different. They look different. And the people, the religious folks of the day, couldn't quite get a handle on it. And all they could tell was that they, text says they were unschooled, but that they'd been with Jesus. I sure hope people would say that of me. I hope they say it of you. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know how to describe it. But something is different. They've been with Jesus. I don't know all this about Jesus, but something's different here. And when we look at this text, we see Jesus rearranging priorities. And you know, he can do it similar to what he did with Jonah. Or he can do it through a simple call and a radical obedience on your end. Follow me. So he arose and followed him. You know what? He didn't tell Jesus to come back next week for an answer. I need to think about it. Nor did he postpone his following until he rearranged his schedule with the Roman government. Hey, is there any way I can get lesser hours now? He didn't do that. His following wasn't a preview of, of something to come. It, it, what's, what's out there, Jesus? It, you see, his following demanded immediate attention. He was directed to follow Jesus, and that's exactly what he did. Look at verse 15. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners also sat with, together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. All right? The call is made, the answer is decisive, and then the text cuts. Here's what I'm talking about earlier, about Mark. How he goes from this to this to this. Okay? It cuts. No longer are you passing by now on the road with Jesus and the multitude, but now you're transported to the house of Levi. One verse later. And I got a lot of questions between 14 and 50. How much time took place between Jesus' call and Levi's response to follow? The text doesn't give us a specific answer, but I'm gathering it took long enough to invite some party guests to the house. And with a crowd already around Jesus... It would not have taken too long to get invites out. Jesus is going to Levi's house. And you see, Levi's got some people 
some fellow tax collectors who are hearing this word. And there's some other, even outside the circle of tax collectors, there's another circle that's referenced in the text. Sinners. Those dreaded sinners. Those tax collectors and those sinners are the ones who get the invite. And they show up at the house. And Jesus is eating in Levi's house. You know, see, it's, this all sounds so good right here. And it turns another corner when you get to 16. These guests are coming. In fact, it's helpful, I believe, here to, to segue to Mark, or excuse me, to Luke 5:29 in his account. It answers one of the questions I had. Why is he going to Levi's house? Here's what Luke 5:29 says. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. Why is he going to Levi's house? Levi gave him a feast. He is the guest of honor in Levi's house. Jesus is the main attention. This is not about Levi. This is about Levi pointing to Jesus as the one who has rearranged his priorities now. And I want everybody to know about it. All my colleagues, all my workers, fellow tax collectors, sinners, come on over to my house. I'm having a feast. And don't you think Levi's feast would have been a a wonderful feast? I mean, after all, I believe Levi was a pretty wealthy man. He probably did this upright. This was probably a nice feast to be a part of. And so they come. Notice that Levi's following of Jesus is immediately evidenced. It's evidenced. He has this feast in his house for Jesus. This was no silent following after Jesus. He didn't view the matter as a private thing. He desired all of his tax collecting buddies to know about his job change. As of this moment, I'm no longer collecting taxes for Rome. You won't see me anymore on that platform in my tax office. I'm following Jesus full time, starting right now. And he wanted his fellow sinners. You see, I like this because the fellow sinners, these were the only folks Levi could hang around with. He wasn't welcomed in the synagogue. His family was no doubt shamed if he had family. We don't know a whole lot about the story. But he was shunned by many. And so who else is he going to hang with? Sinners. Those sinners and tax collectors. That was the two circles that Levi knew. He knew those circles. Makes the call, come on over. You know, Mark's account leads you to believe that as Jesus is reclining at Levi's table, many other tax collectors and sinners then made their way in and seated themselves next to Jesus. And the text says, don't miss this, for there were many, many tax collectors, many sinners. Are you uncomfortable around those kind of people? 
sinners in particular? Do those kinds of folks make you uncomfortable? That's a, that's a difficult question. Because I see here in the text, as they arrive, it says not only were there many, it says they followed him. That's Jesus. So who's following here? Well, you've got a multitude of people. You've got a crowd of people that are following Jesus, but they're following for the wrong reasons. They're following for what they can get out of him. They're following because, ooh, look what he did. And then you've got people who are following him, like Simon and Andrew and James and John, and now Levi, who have left everything, left their father in the boat, left their nets along the seashore, left their tax office, and they're following Jesus. And then you have a group of people called tax collectors, additional tax collectors, and sinners, and they come, and they're sitting at the table with Jesus, and there's wonderful conversation, I I gather, happening. And the text says, they followed him. The house party guests had arrived, and Levi tells his colleagues that he's done. And, you know, pointing to Jesus at the table, I can almost imagine him recounting the scene. You know, you ever think about that? You ever think about how when you get together with somebody, something really important in your life that's happened, and what do you want to do? You want to tell them about it. You want to just go through every little detail about it. I, I, I believe that's probably what happened here. Levi is excited about this very thing. He invites these people to come. Jesus is standing there, sitting there, reclining at the table. And he says, you know, I heard that Jesus was coming my way. He just healed a paralytic. Somebody came and told me that all these people were excited about what's just going on about this man, Jesus. And all these people were flocking around him. And here he comes, my way, right by the tax booth. He's walking down the way and all these people around him. And then he stops. And guys, let me tell you what he did. He stopped He's with all these people around. He stopped and he turned and he looked at me. And all he said was two words. He said, follow me. And he said, guys, you know, honestly, I have to admit, I don't know exactly what it was, but there was something about the call that I just left everything and I followed him. And I'm starting to see clearly my need for Jesus. You can imagine them hearing the story as he's recounting the story of Jesus coming by the sea, seeing Levi, calling Levi. And at the end of all of that, you can also hear the testimony of Levi. I'm rearranging my priorities, guys. I'm following Jesus. Whatever was said during that great feast, the text is clear. It says the sinners and tax collectors that had gathered also followed him. Jesus loved these men. His grace was poured out abundantly toward Levi. His grace extended to the many other tax collectors and sinners who dined with him. Levi and company were known as the outcasts of the day. And yet Jesus has no problem eating a meal with them. He had just touched a leper at the end of chapter 1. Healed a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 2. And now he rubs shoulders with tax collectors and other sinners. And you see that the leper is shunned because of his uncleanness. The tax collector is shunned due to his social uncleanness, his occupation. You see, Jews were not to associate with such folks, and yet Jesus does. 
He not only calls Levi to follow him, but then he's found dining at his house with a group of Levi's co-workers. Now, the shift, you see a big shift right here in verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? How is it? And so once again, just as the scribes had a seat in the house where Jesus healed the paralytic, so we see that the scribes and Pharisees had come to the house of Levi. They saw Jesus eating and no doubt enjoying himself with this crowd of sinners. And the initial reaction most likely was shock. He's breaking all of the Jewish regulations and customs. They have a question for Jesus' disciples. I find it interesting. Another question in the text. I find it interesting. Why do they find out that they have to go to the disciples of Jesus? Why don't they just go to Jesus and ask him? I mean, by now, hopefully they figured this out. Even if I'm thinking these things in my heart, he already knows it. And so, once again, they go sideways, ask a question to Jesus' disciples. How is it that he eats? Talking about Jesus. How, how, how is it? How, how can he do this? What's he doing? One writer talks about these Jewish dietary laws. He says, They were and are intended to exclude contact with Gentiles, especially in the intimacy of table fellowship. Jesus' disrespect for this essential Jewish boundary causes great offense to the scribes. Yes, it does. And he goes on, he says, Jesus' behavior again, exacerbates a latent tension into an open conflict with the scribes. In chapter 2, 1 through 12, the conflict resulted from his forgiveness of sins. Here it results from his eating with sinners. The cleft between Jesus and the scribes is accentuated by the word followed. Levi follows Jesus, as do the tax collectors and sinners. But the scribes and Pharisees do not follow Jesus. And the lesson Fellowship with Jesus is based on a radically different standard from that of the Torah, or at least the Torah embraced by the scribes and Pharisees. Levi follows Jesus, and upon arriving at Levi's house for the great feast, many other tax collectors and sinners follow Jesus as well. And yet, when you get to the religious folks in verse 16, they're the ones found not following Jesus. They're the ones found questioning and doubting Jesus. They're the ones critical of Jesus spending any time with these particular characters. Is it possible that we've missed the point of what it means to follow Jesus? Is it possible that Mark's gospel is highlighting a fundamental response to the gospel? Follow me. And yet at the same time, making it pointedly clear who the true followers are and are not. <laughs> Follow me is a call to trust him with all of your life. And what is it that keeps you from fully trusting Jesus with all your life? What does following Jesus look like in your life? What does it look like for your family? What does it look like for this church body at Hope in Christ? What does the call to follow Jesus look like for this church family stationed right here in Pendleton, Indiana? What's it look like? 
What ought it look like? How is this body following Jesus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and yes, even Sunday, the Lord's Day? Listen to how Jesus concludes. He answers the question from verse 16. Remember, it's a question directed at his disciples. Jesus either just knows it or word comes to him. Okay? He hears about it. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, the first part of his answer addresses the hearts, in particular, I believe, of the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet it transcends the hearts of the religious leaders and reaches forward to today. Okay? These words are intended, I believe, to pierce the hearts of those who, even today, harbor a legalist inner circle mentality toward Jesus. Jesus is not simply making a truth statement here about someone's health, saying that, you know what, if he's well, there's no need to go see a physician, a doctor. Okay? The statement is made with power, and it has great purpose, I believe, here in the text. Those who see themselves as well never see themselves in need of a doctor. Most of you, I imagine, would never think of visiting the doctor's office unless you had something bothering you. And can you imagine how silly it would be? Call, make an appointment. And you go to the doctor's office. And you're sitting in the waiting room. Steve, you are next. And you get up there and you go into the doctor's office. And you sit there and you wait an hour until they come. And then once he's in there, he says, well, what can I do for you? How's your day, doc? How's it going? No, no, what can I do for you? What do you mean? Well, you're here at the doctor's office. I'm assuming something's wrong. No, I just, just thought it'd be, I'd like, just like to talk to you today, see how things are going. We don't do that. You go to the doctor's office because something's bothering you. Something hurts. You need something taken care of. Okay, so what we see here is the point that Jesus is making is that none of you are healthy. Spiritually speaking, every single one of you need a physician. You're all sick and in need of a physician, and yet some of you actually think you're well enough not to make an appointment with me. Get the idea of Jesus is in these words saying, you know, these tax collectors and sinners that you see, look at them for just a moment. They have something that you don't have. They are able to see something you've not yet seen. They're following me. And having seen their need for a physician, they're following me. The need, that's the point. You don't see the need for the physician in your life. You've got it all figured out. You've manipulated things quite well on your own. And you don't yet see the need for a physician. These guys, you can call them what you want to call them. They're here dining with me, following me, because they are needing a physician. They are leaving everything behind because they see their need for a physician. Look at verse 17, how it ends. 
I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you know what? This points directly to his mission, his purpose in coming down here to earth. Jesus came to call the very people he's dining with, church. In fact, he came down to earth as Luke 19.10, the story of Zacchaeus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? The heart of Christ is to seek. He came down to earth and he tabernacled among us, John says, for a time. And the kind of people he surrounds himself with are not the most popular people of the day. They're ordinary, they're common, they're fishermen, they're tax collectors. They're outcasts in society, perhaps, in some situations. The lost, the hurting, the forgotten. Jesus stops on the way to the sea and he sees Levi and he knows everything about this man and he calls him to follow To you and me, Levi might not be qualified. You remember when Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint the next king? Surely this man Eliab is the next king. No, no, you got it all wrong. (laughs) Because you see, God doesn't look on the outward like man. God looks on the heart. David was a little boy, a shepherd boy. He wasn't even invited into the house initially. He was young, the youngest of those sons in Jesse's household. But it was this young man who was called of the Lord to be his anointed in Israel. Levi may not be your first choice, but Jesus selects him to fill a role on his team. Jesus selects this tax collector to join Jesus, to make him a fisher of men. So the heart of Christ is to call sinners to repentance, to seek and to save the lost. He's not impressed, church, with your position, with your resume, with your nice house, with your 401. You know, the story was told of the man who came up to his pastor and he told the pastor he was desiring to be in leadership in that particular church. And the reason for him desiring to be a part of the leadership in that church had everything to do with the fact he was giving lots of money. And the pastor quickly responded, no, no, that's not, how, that's not how it works in the Lord's house. We don't raise someone to a position of leadership because they give a lot of money. And no, no, pastor, you don't understand. I give, I give a lot of money, and there are a lot of other churches in this area that would like for me to be a part of their body, I'm sure. To which the pastor responded, maybe you need to go check those other churches out. The whole idea being here as we understand and come to see these priorities in the heart of Christ. He's not impressed with all of these other things. He wants you to follow him. And like this man in this particular story, are you following Jesus for something other than Jesus? Are you following him because of what you might get out of him? physically benefit from him no doubt there are benefits right the psalmist talks about let's not forget the benefits there are wonderful benefits but i'm talking about the merely selfish agendas what we get out of jesus are you following him to get something in return are you following him to get praise or position or are you following him because you see your need for jesus I love the hymn, I need thee every hour. 
not just on Sunday. Every hour, I need thee. And thinking about the text and thinking about following Jesus today, seeing our need, why is it that people today, by and large, aren't following Jesus? I believe at least in part and in large part that people, just like in the text today, have never seen their need for a Savior because they're so busy operating and they've done things just fine and things have worked out just fine up to this point. I've got a nice, comfortable lifestyle. Why do I need Jesus? One of the challenges at times is preaching and teaching. And maybe you found this to be true. You've seen it, maybe where you've been. The difficulty sometimes of preaching to a group or teaching a group who feels like they already have everything taken care of. I pray that as a body, we would come to understand that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened to be able to understand our need for Jesus. We need a Savior. A Savior. Ephesians 2 says you were dead. He made you alive. That Savior is the one who does that work. And and this text is a reminder for us about following Jesus and that to follow Jesus is to abandon your own priorities to align them with Christ's priorities. You have new ownership now. Things ought to look differently now. How you spend your time, where you go, what you do, how much this book gets used and accessed. Your time with the body of Christ. All these things are impacted now that you follow Jesus. So this morning, close with a few questions to consider from the text. Do you see your need for Jesus? Some of you here today may not be following Jesus. I believe the question, one of the questions asked this morning is, do you see the need for Jesus? And I pray that you do. Like Levi, I pray that you would just hear that and know that Jesus' mission, one of his purposes in coming was to seek and save the lost and that you would drop things that you're doing and follow. And maybe the follow-up question for some of us is, do you see the need for Jesus today, in this moment? You know, I was reminded of what Paul says. You know, you started out so well operating in, in the Spirit. Now, hmm, now you seem to be operating in the flesh. Do you still today see your need for Jesus? And then finally, is your life Different because of following Jesus. What you say, you may say the right words. Is your life different because of following Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we do need you every hour. Thank you for the grace that saved us. 
Father, that same grace is, is something that we need each day of our lives. I'm reminded of Paul and how he brings about his weakness. And that in his weakness, your strength is magnified. I pray, Father, that we would also echo those words. How your grace is sufficient for all things in our life. Oh, Lord, I pray that as a body here at Hope in Christ that we would walk after you. That we'd be unashamed to walk after you. To go where you've called us to go. To speak words you've called us to speak. To live our lives in such a way that patterns the master. Father, that people would see there's something out there different. There's something better. People would see that they've been created for a purpose. To give God glory. Father, that glory and giving Him glory gets manifested and understood and unraveled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we come to know who He is, come to know His ways, come to know His Word, and then obediently walk in that way. Father, I pray this church would walk and follow hard after Jesus. Rearrange this morning, Father, I pray. Rearrange our priorities if necessary. That we might follow you. Wherever. Doing whatever. As you call. As you lead. And may we give you great glory in that whole process. Thank you, Father, for calling us. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of following after you. May we represent you well in the time that we have here on this earth. As your ambassadors, as your salt and light. May we represent you well here in these days. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.